If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth. Today we are finishing the Ruth chapter 1. If you've been here, this is week 3 in Ruth. Don't worry, next week we're doing all of chapter 2, so we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, But for the benefit of those here today who haven't heard the first two sermons, I want to give just a little bit of context of where we are. The book of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges, a very dark place in Israel's history. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the book of Ruth opens with a famine in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread, so there's no bread in the house of bread. We find a man named Elimelech and his family, his wife Naomi, his sons Mahlon and Kilion. Uh, and because there's no bread in the house of bread, they flee to Moab, the pagan land. Uh, not a good decision. Leaving God's promised land to go to a foreign land where a foreign god, Chemosh, is worshipped. There in that foreign land, Elimelech dies. And then his two sons die. And so Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. They find out that there's, uh, the Lord has lifted the famine, and so they return, and on the way back, Naomi tells her daughter-in-laws, hey, don't come with me, it's, it's too tough. Go back home. Orpah listens, takes the practical road, the practical choice, goes back home. Ruth says, no, I will go with you. I am devoting myself to you and to your people, and most importantly, to your God. She's converted, puts her faith in Yahweh. The Lord God of Israel, she takes the way of faith. And that's where we pick up our story. Before we read this text, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. God, you have told us that your word is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Lord, would you remind us that your word is sweeter than honey, Lord, it is more precious than gold or silver. And Lord, would our lives be transformed by the work of your Spirit through your Word. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy Word, Ruth 1. We're starting in verse 19. You'll find that printed in your bulletin or in your own Bible if you have it with you. Ruth 1, starting in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. In the June 1980 issue of the devotional, Our Daily Bread, An author tells a story of how a Christian providentially escaped death. An unexpected delay in New York kept him from catching Flight 191 in Chicago, which crashed. That article brought this note from a reader. 
I just had to let you know about one of God's great saints who ran to make Flight 191 and made it. His name was Edwards E. Elliott, beloved pastor of the Garden Grove Orthodox Presbyterian Church in California. His plane from Pennsylvania was late, and a friend who had accompanied said that he last saw him dashing forward in the terminal to make his connection. The author of the devotional recounts, as I read about Pastor Elliot's fruitful ministry, the question I raised in that June devotional challenged me with new urgency. Was divine providence operating only in New York and not in Chicago? Immediately, the words of my correspondent came alive. At the time, Reverend Elliot didn't know he was indeed running to heaven. Miss Elliot and her four married children comforted the entire church. Their Christian faith and testimony and sorrow was most extraordinary. Friends, trials and tragedy can strike at any time. None of us know what tomorrow holds. And in light of this reality, a question arises, how does God fit into all of this? You know, the author of the devotional I referenced described God's providence surrounding the crash of Flight 191. Here at the end of Ruth 1, we find Naomi talking about God's involvement in her life circumstances. If you have your Bible open, I want you to look back earlier in chapter 1 in verse 13. Naomi is speaking to her daughters-in-law, and she says, No, my daughters, saying, Go back. Don't come with me. No, go back. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You know, Naomi's, Naomi's words here are fascinating. And when she says the hand of the Lord, we need to be careful. Scripture is clear that God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like we do. So God doesn't literally have hands. No, the hand of God refers in Scripture to his providential work. It's his authority, his rule, his reign, his sovereign work in the world. And so Naomi is attributing her trials to God. And she clarifies in verse 20 of our passage, she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Very clear, God is the one responsible. Well, is Naomi right to attribute her circumstances to God? Some would say no. Just this past week, a man by the name of Rabbi Harold S. Kushner passed away. Rabbi Kushner became famous for a book he wrote in 1981 entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People, which he wrote after the death of his 14-year-old son. In that book, he writes, it becomes much easier to take God seriously as the source of moral values if we don't hold him responsible for all the unfair things that happen in the world. He goes on to say this, I don't know why one person gets sick and another does not, but I can only assume that some natural laws which we don't understand are at work. I cannot believe that God sends illness to a specific person or a specific reason. I don't believe in a God who would have a weekly quota of malignant tumors to distribute and consults his computer to find out who deserves one most or who could handle it best. Basically what this man says is that God has nothing to do with suffering 
And he says that God can't even stop it. And so what he encourages people to do is just basically cheer God on and hope that good beats evil. You know, many people buy into that. There's a reason that book became a number one seller, and many Christians agree. But friends, this is heresy. It's a direct contradiction of Scripture. Scripture is very clear that God is sovereign over everything. Philippians 1.11, for example, Paul says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Author A.W. Pink says the sovereignty of God may be defined as his exercise of supremacy. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, always as he pleases. Divine sovereignty means that he is on the throne of the universe directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. God is the king. Our friends in Britain just crowned a new king yesterday, and that is a wonderful thing, a wonderful time to celebrate. But even greater than King Charles is the Lord God Almighty, the king on the throne. He's the one who's sovereign. And if that's the case, then how should we understand it? Here in the close of Ruth 1, we find two contrasting views of the providential hand of God. On the one hand, we have Naomi's view. And on the other hand, we have the view presented by the author. At the heart of it, Naomi's view, Naomi views the hand of God as one of bitter affliction. As we saw a minute ago, she says the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. She says in verse 20 that she is no longer Naomi. Remember, Elijah told the kids, Naomi means pleasant or sweet. But that no longer describes her. She says, call me Mara, which means bitter. She's allowed her bitter circumstances to bring her to a place of bitterness in her heart. And then in verse 21, she says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, in what sense did she go away full? Certainly, it wasn't full of food because there's a famine in the land. No, what it seems that she's saying is she went away full relationally. She had a husband and two sons. Things were good in her life. But they die. She comes back empty. So we can think of Naomi's plight this way, as one commentator puts it. She's gone from a shortage of food to a loss of family and now to an internal emptiness. Can you relate to that? Do you ever feel an internal emptiness like Naomi? Maybe like her, it's because of the death of a family member. Maybe it's after a job loss. Maybe it's after the breakup of a boyfriend or girlfriend. Or maybe it's just feeling lonely. Earlier this week, U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy published an 82-page paper on what he calls an epidemic of loneliness in our country. Study that included, was included in that paper found that a lack of connectedness can increase the risk of premature death at the same amount as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. You know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we all probably experienced loneliness. And my guess is many of us still feel lonely. I believe Naomi was lonely. How could she not be? 
She comes back empty. Now we can understand the deep emotional, emotional turmoil within her. She's gone through so much. She's worn down. Life has been hard. Grief is real. Our hearts go out to her. But let's think for a minute about her response to God. Notice that she doesn't directly attack God. You know, if you read the book of Job, there's times after Job's suffering that he kind of rails at God. God, how could you do this? How could you do that? But Naomi's talking to the women of Bethlehem. It's kind of like she's gossiping about God to these Bethlehemite women. Really? That doesn't seem like a good idea. But in doing so, she sets herself up in direct opposition to the Lord. In her mind, God's providence is bitter. He has been harsh with her and bitterly afflicted her. She sees nothing of God's goodness. She does not think on the good things that God has done for his people throughout history. She doesn't think about what God has done for her and her family. She fails to see what he is currently doing. That's often how grief and loss work, right? They prevent us from remembering what God has done in the past, and they prevent us from seeing clearly what he is currently doing. Can you relate to that? How the trials you faced impacted your view of God and the world? Are you blinded to see Blinded from seeing what he's currently doing. You know, at the root of Naomi's problem is really kind of some bad theology. Her beliefs about God are all out of whack. And this isn't totally surprising given the dark time in this period of the judges. Spiritual decay is prevalent. Her circumstances play a role. And in one sense, we can't totally blame her. But we also can't take her off the hook. She forgets that God is a God who cares for widows. Psalm 68, 5 says, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God and his holy habitation. Amen. And Naomi forgets the meaning of Shaddai or Almighty that she uses in verses 20 and 21. It's a name that means God gives blessings to his people. In Genesis 17, it says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. But Naomi doesn't remember that. And all this forgetfulness or lack of knowledge to begin with led Naomi to a very dark place. Her view of God is distorted. She's right to attribute her circumstances to God, but she's wrong to see them as bitter affliction. In what ways are you like Naomi? How do you see the trials of your life as bitter affliction? Where are you tempted to see God's providence as a negative rather than a positive? Well, if Naomi's understanding of the hand of God is wrong, then what's the right view? How should we understand God's providential hand? Ultimately, God's providence should be seen as a loving kindness rather than bitter affliction. You know, the story of Ruth, the whole book is one of loving kindness. We see loving kindness of the different characters shown to one another, but really we see the loving kindness of God. And the Hebrew word for this is hesed. 
It's it's God's covenant loyalty and faithfulness, his steadfast love. Often translated as kindness or mercy. But one English word just doesn't do it justice. Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy, has said, shall follow me all the days of my life. Or Psalm 103, 8 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, has said. You know, God's has said is really what his providential hand has brought Naomi. God didn't abandon this widow in the fields of Moab to die in a foreign land. No, he pursued her. He brought her to rock bottom so that he could bring her home. On top of that, he gave her Ruth. In chapter 1, verse 8, she says, May the Lord deal kindly, has said, with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Ruth showed Naomi, has said, which was part of God's, has said to Naomi. Now, Naomi didn't have eyes to see it, but that didn't change the reality. And as if that wasn't enough, think about how our chapter ends. So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You know, that last sentence seems kind of like a temporal marker. The barley harvest, okay, cool, late April or May in our day, all right, let's move on to chapter 2. But the significance should not be overlooked. Barley was the first grain to be harvested. Several weeks later was the harvest of wheat. This was the prime time for these desperate widows to arrive in Bethlehem. The shelves are being restocked with barley and soon with wheat. They just happen to arrive at the right time because of luck or fate? No, of course not. It was God's providential hand that brought them back at just the right time. In Exodus 15, the people of Israel have just crossed the Red Sea. Talk about an amazing experience of the hand of God providing. Dividing the walls of the, of the water, they cross on dry land, they, the dry land, they sing praises to God. And then what happens? They come to a place called Mara. Sound familiar? Bitter. Why is it called that? Because the water is bitter. And what do they do? They complain. <laughs> They just saw God drown the armies of Egypt in the waters of the Red Sea. But we don't have water to drink. Complained. Does God smite them dead? No. He tells Moses, hey, throw a log in there. And guess what? It turns sweet. And then in Exodus 15, 27, it says, Then they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And they encamped there by the water. You know, when Naomi calls herself bitter, she should have thought back to the history of her ancestors of that name, Mara. Hey, God provided for them. I'm going to dare to believe that God can provide for me. But her grief clouded her vision. Or think about Joseph in the book of Genesis. His brothers hated him so much they wanted him dead. They threw him in a pit, and then they sold him as a slave. Went to Egypt. Was life in Egypt good at first? No, it was terrible. He was a prisoner. But yet at the very end, the last chapter of Genesis, Joseph says to his brothers, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's what Naomi is missing. 
As ARPs, we look back to Scotland for much of our ancestry. And one of the groups that led to the formation of our denomination were the Covenanters. These were brothers and sisters who didn't want the monarch controlling the church, and so because of that, they faced intense persecution. One of those men was named Alan Cameron. He was the father of the well-known preacher Richard Cameron, who went by the name Lion of the Covenant. For his covenanter views, Alan Cameron was placed in prison. One day, the guards threw a sack into the cell. It contained a severed head and severed hands. The guards taunted the prisoner. Do you know them? Cameron kissed the head, and he said, I know them, I know them. They are my own sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord, who cannot wrong me or mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. He got it. Cameron understood that God's providential hand was one of loving kindness and not bitter affliction. What about you? How do you view God's work in this world? Standing where we do in redemptive history, we have an even clearer picture of how God's providence is loving kindness. Why? We can look to the cross. The cross is one of the most horrific events in history. The innocent man, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, died an unjust death at the hands of wicked, lawless men. Was this part of God's providence? Certainly. Acts 2, 22 and 23, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Friends, at the cross, the loving kindness of God's providential hand was on full display. At the cross, mercy came to sinners like us because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. And friends, that's what we celebrate here at this table. The sacrament of communion, we remember what Christ did on the cross. We proclaim his death until he come. We feast on our risen Savior. So when you're tempted to doubt God's loving kindness, look to the cross. Remember that what God brings your way is his loving kindness. Perhaps he's emptying your hands like he did of Naomi to fill them with something better. To fill them with himself. Not the things of this world, but with God himself. So dare to believe that that is true. Dare to believe that God is good and full of loving kindness. And let that motivate you to follow him all the days of your life. Let us pray.